read uh, a story to you this morning to start out. Uh, a few of you might have heard this story. Um, I've read it before, but it's been a long time. It's a story about a sea lion who lost the sea. Okay? Once upon a time, there lived a sea lion who had lost the sea. He lived in a country known as the Barren Lands, high on a plateau, far from the coast. It was a place so dry and dusty that it could only be called a desert. A kind of coarse grass grew in patches here and there, and a few trees were scattered across the horizon. But mostly it was dust and sometimes wind, which together make one very thirsty. Of course, it must seem strange to you that such a beautiful creature should wind up in a desert at all. He was, mind you, a sea lion. But things like this do happen. How the sea lion came to the barren lands, no one could remember. It all seemed so very long ago. So long, in fact, it appeared as though he had always been there. Not that he belonged in such an arid place. How could that be? He was, after all, a sea lion. But as you know, once you've lived so long in a certain spot, no matter how odd, you come to think of it as home. There was a time many years back when the sea lion knew he was lost. In those days, he would stop every traveler he met to see if he might help them find his way back to the sea. But no one seemed to know the way. On he searched, but never finding. After years without success, the sea lion took refuge beneath a solitary tree behind a very small water hole. The tree provided refuge from the burning rays of the sun, which was very fierce in that place. And the water hole, though small and muddy, was wet in its own way. Here he settled down and got on as best he could. Had you journeyed in those days through the barren lands, you might have seen the sea lion for yourself. Quite often in the evening, he would go and sit upon his favorite rock, a very large boulder, which lifted him off the burning sand and allowed him a view of the entire country. There he would remain for hours into the night, silhouetted against the sky, and on the best nights when the wind shifted to the east, a faint smell of salt air would come to him on the breeze. Then he would close his eyes and imagine himself once more at the sea. When he lay himself down to sleep, he would dream of a vast, deep ocean, Twisting and turning, diving and twirling, he would swim and swim and swim. When he woke, though, he heard the sound of the breakers. The sea was calling to him. The sea lion loved his rock and even loved waiting night after night for the sea breeze that might come. Especially he loved the dreams those memories would stir. But as you well know, even the best of dreams cannot go on in the morning when the sea lion woke, he was still in the barren lands. Sometimes he would close his eyes and try to fall back asleep. It never seemed to work, for the sun was always very bright. Eventually, it became too much for him to bear. He began to visit his rock only on occasion. I have too much to do, he told himself. I can't waste my time idling about. He really did not have so much to do. The truth of it was, waking so far from home was such a disappointment. He did not want to have those wonderful dreams anymore. The day finally came when he stopped going to the rock altogether and he no longer lifted his nose to the wind when the sea breezes blew. 
The sea lion was not entirely alone in these parts, for it was there he met the tortoise. Now this tortoise was an ancient creature so weathered by his life in the barren lands that at first the sea lion mistook him for a rock. He told the tortoise of his plight, hoping that this wise one might be able to help him. Perhaps, the tortoise mused, this is the sea. The sea lion swept his flippers once again his side, gliding to the end of the water hole and back. I don't know, he said, it isn't very deep. Somehow I thought the sea would be much broader, much deeper. At least I had hoped so. You must be learned, learned to be happy here, the tortoise told him, for it is unlikely you shall ever find this sea of yours. Deep in his old and shriveled heart, the tortoise envied the sea lion and his sea. But I belong to the sea. We were made for each other. Perhaps. But you have been gone so long, the sea has probably forgotten you. This thought had never occurred to the sea lion. But it was true. He had been gone for a very long time. If this is not my home, how can I ever feel at home here? The sea lion asked. You will in time, the tortoise responded. I have seen the sea, and it is no better than what you have found here. You have seen the sea? Yes, come close, whispered the tortoise, and I will tell you a secret. I am not a tortoise. I am a sea turtle. But I left the sea of my own accord many years ago in search of better things. If you stay with me, I will tell you the stories of my adventures. The stories of the ancient tortoise were enchanting and soon cast their spell upon the lion. A week passed into months, his memory of the sea faded. The desert whispered the tortoise as all that is, or was, or will ever be. When the sea grew, sun grew fierce and burned his skin, the sea lion would hide in the shade of the tree, listening to the tales woven by the tortoise. When the dry winds cracked his flippers and filled his eyes with dust, the sea lion would retreat to the water hole. And so the sea lion remained, living his days between the water hole and the tree. The sea no longer filled his dreams. In the greatest of all human tragedies, John Eldridge writes, we lost paradise. What's happened since is unthinkable. We've gotten used to it. Jesus began his ministry and so many of his relationships with, the, with desire. His very first words in the Gospel of John were, what do you want? The occasion was John the Baptist was preaching and he saw Jesus coming. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one of John's disciples, Andrew, and another of his disciples went to Jesus. And they approached Jesus and Jesus said, what do you want? You read on through John chapter 1. And Jesus' other disciples that he's just now meeting, Philip, Peter, Nathaniel, all as they meet Jesus, go to one another and said, we have found the one. 
which is to say, if we found someone, they were looking for them. They wanted something. We found what it is that we were looking for. When Jesus met the man at the pool of Bethesda, who had been an invalid for 38 years, he said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The woman at the well. He says, if you ask me for a drink, I could give you fresh living water. Jesus' invitation in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. Come to me all you who are looking for something, desiring something, wanting something. Come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus has nothing to offer the person who is completely satisfied with the status quo. At least not that they're willing or ready to receive. Now I know, I know what Paul says. Paul says that we ought to be content. And isn't contentment the, the opposite of desire? He says to, to the church in Philippi, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or in plenty or in want. To his young charge, Timothy, he said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content. But Paul's contentment is a contentment of a kind. Because just in that passage in Philippians chapter 4, just a few verses before, he had said this, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The straining and pressing on, does that sound like contentment? And it sounds like Paul still has something in his heart and on his mind that he is pursuing, that he is desiring, that has not been fulfilled. I've been watching the last couple of weeks a documentary on um, climbing Mount Everest. And I'm, I'm fascinated by these people who make it their um, aspiration, their goal to stand on the highest point on planet Earth. And there's a part of me that is just like, I mean, these people are, they're crazy. And I got caught up in season one, and I'm getting closer to the season one. And, and like, I had to watch the last episode because there were a couple of people on the mountain. It's like, are they going to make it down? And I, so I watched the last episode, and lo and behold, they get to back to base camp. They survived. They didn't get to the top, but they're alive. And I'm like, Phew, right? And then, it, as you all know, it like goes to the next episode, which is the first episode of season two. And those same people that I had to watch the next episode to get off the mountain are back on the mountain going for it again. One in three who set out to conquer Everest make it. One in 100 die in the pursuit. And countless digits and limbs are lost in the quest. 
You guys, I love wilderness. I, I love adventure. But I do not watch with this and say, I want to do that. I, I do not watch and say, I want to go there, right? Not even, like, not even when I was young and stupid. Now I'm just old and stupid, right? Kind of takes some things off the table, but never, right? Not in my wildest dreams would I want to do that. But as I say that, I remember many years ago, um, I was uh, painting houses to make some extra money. And uh, we, a friend and I, we painted the house of this um, woman. Uh, she was probably, I'd say, early 50s. I mean, she was, she was still vital, right? She still had life to live. And her home... Every window in her house was bolted shut, had blinds drawn and curtains pulled. We had to go into the house because when you paint windows on a house, you have to, after you paint them, you have to cut them loose so they don't get stuck shut. But I don't know why it mattered because she was never going to open them again anyway. But to walk into her home was to walk into a tomb. She had reduced her life out of fear and what she perceived to be threats to this single dwelling place in darkness. Seeking to eliminate all kinds of of threats is a kind of death of its own. If I had to choose between Everest and that, you make your own choice. We can't live without longing. But it puts us in harm's way. It puts us at risk of disappointment, of heartbreak, even of death, if we follow those desires. I mapped out this series that we're um, in right now, Inside Out, back in December, and uh, kind of put together a rough draft of where it was going. And so I knew at the beginning of the week um, where um, the, the the content, the, the directive was for this morning, but um, I sat down early in, on, on Monday, actually, and I often use this, just, I have a, a little worksheet that I use to clarify my thoughts and um, to crystallize where it is that I'm going, and, and I, so I sat down to do this on Monday, and it just wasn't clicking. It, it wasn't coming, and I, and I came back to it again on Tuesday, and, uh, and Tuesday was no better, and I came back to it again on Wednesday, and, and it just wasn't coming. And I was getting pretty frustrated, and I, and I, liked, I write my messages mostly um, on Thursday, but kind of have things, you know, lined up. So when I come in on Thursday morning, I, I know where I'm going, and I still didn't know. I'm like, what's wrong? I know, what I'm, I know where this is at. I know where this is going, but it's not just, it's just not coming together. And I realized that my struggle was this. 
I was trying to figure out a way to say what I want to say to you and to me that was safe. I want to figure out a way to say to you, hey, you can't have life without desire, which puts you in harm's way in a way that was safe. Why? Well, I've pursued some dreams, and in the pursuit, I've experienced some heart-crushing disappointments. I've told many of you over the course of our years together to pursue dreams. And some of you have pursued those dreams and traveled to other parts of the country, and those relationships have ended. God bless you if you're watching today. We still love you. And some of those dreams that you've pursued have led to your own heartbreaks and disappointments. I've, um, this is my 25th year of the journey. This is my 39th year in ministry. And we just went through a pandemic that has completely shuffled all of our world and the church has been uniquely impacted by it. And suddenly it's like, after 39 years of ministry, 25 years of the journey, it's like, what's the future hold? What does it look like? How do we, how do we dream into it? It's like the whole deck has been shuffled and there's this part of me that wants to play it safe. To, to say, hey, we can still do this thing called church. We can still do this thing called faith. We can still do this thing called life. But this time, not take too many chances. This time, not risk too much. I had to answer with a question for myself on Thursday. Do I want to go there? Do I want to go there again? Solomon was um, King David's son. He was um, in his um, anointing as king, had a conversation with God, asked for wisdom. God gave him wisdom. So he's, he wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, um, Psalm of Psalms. Song of Songs, Psalms on the same book. Proverbs, considered the wisest man who ever lived. And he had his own demons when it came to desire. The book of Ecclesiastes, really interesting read, is basically his journal of the pursuits of all of his Everest, of all the things that he aspired to, of all the things that he wanted in his life that he chased to their end. He went after wisdom and chased it to its end. He went after pleasure and chased it to its end. He went after wealth and building and chased it to its end. And every end took him to a place of disappointment. His, his opening charge and repeated paraphrase or refrain throughout the, the book is meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I tried this, and 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 they all came up empty. He writes in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity 
in the hearts of humanity. That there is what some people call a God-shaped vacuum in each and every heart and soul. There's something inside of us that was meant to be filled by God that can only be filled by God, and everything else we try to put in that spot is not big enough, not capable of, because it is a spot created for infinity, a spot created for eternity, and nothing meets that need. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Solomon locates desire in the heart. Our longings, our desires are hardwired to our heart. And when they don't get fulfilled, it is heartbreaking. It makes us heart sick. And he connects the fulfillment of those longings when they come true. He calls it a tree of life. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Remember we looked at the tree of life last week, right? The tree of life is at the center of the Garden of Eden. It was what Adam and Eve had access to until sin took them out of the garden. Last week we we talked about it being the life of God that was available to them in the garden. God manifests himself in the temple that he is longing to establish inside of us again. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Desire can make us heart sick. But it is only the only way to access the life of God. To desire... Eldridge writes, is to open our hearts to the possibility of pain. To shut down our hearts is to die altogether. Paul hadn't eliminated desire from his life when he he said, I've learned to become content. He had learned what longings don't deliver. He, He had learned what longings can't be fulfilled or won't be fulfilling. You guys remember the show Family Feud? They'd line up people, and then they'd ask them a a question, and they'd done a survey, and the the answers to the questions were, the right answers were who had ever answered the most questions the same way. If you said, hey, you know, if you'd ask 100 people, what do you want in life? Number one answer. It would have to be happiness, right? I mean, if you ask 100 people just off the street, most, we want to be happy. Happiness is what people want. I heard um, some, some research recently. I was talking about trying to understand happiness and how, where happiness comes from and how people become happy or how people are happy. And there, were, there were three components to happiness. There's a set point in each person. Some of us are just like hardwired to be 
more happy than other people. And some of the happiness comes easier for some of us than other people. There's a set point. The second factor was circumstances. It's, it's the stuff going on around us in our lives. And the third factor was mental habits. It's how we focus our mind. What are the things that we think about? What are the things that capture our attention? And how do we process the information? And how do we process our circumstances and our situation? I think most of us operate in the assumption that our circumstances and our situations are the things that ultimately make us unhappy. The research shows that circumstances are actually less than 10% of our happiness quotient. That's what Paul had learned. That circumstances and situations were not the key to contentment. The key to contentment was navigating this set point and mental habits, which are hardwired to spiritual habits, which is why Paul would say, whatever is lovely, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, think about such things. Why Paul would say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What are we doing with the things that we're thinking? Paul says, well-fed or hungry, it's not going to make me happy. Having a little or having a lot, less than 10% of my happiness quotient. When he writes to Timothy, this um, godliness with contentment is great gain. He's talking about stuff. He's talking about food's not going to make you, clothing's not going to make you happy. The key to Paul's contentment and desire is found in the next verse in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He sold out to the presence of God filling him. And that was the way that he learned to live in this place of contentment, even amidst such deep longing and desire. He didn't kill the longing desire. He navigated it from the inside out. He navigated it because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. That is the key to living inside out. Is my prayer for us in this series. As Paul prayed, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit, where in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have, the, have power together with all the Lord's people to, gr to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he goes on to say, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine who can do immeasurably more than you can ever aspire to or dream of 
according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and the Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Desire for what he wants for us. And what he discovered for himself is the life of God in him through Christ. When Jesus asked Andrew and his friend, hey guys, what do you want? Their response that day is, was, show us where you are staying. Which is kind of a weird response. Jesus says, follow me. And I'll show you. And they went with Jesus. And they never left him. Jesus invited them to bring their desire to him. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. In In the same way that he said, Come follow me, guys. I'll show you where I'm saying. He's actually saying, hey, I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Will you let me in? Will you invite my presence? We, we so often use this verse as an evangelistic verse. To people who aren't Christians, to invite them to become Christians, to invite them, to invite Jesus into their lives. This was not written to non-believers. This was not written to, un- this was written to the church. It says, to the church, I am knocking at the door of your heart. Will you open the door and let me in? And if you do, I will come in and I will eat with you. And you with me. G. K. Kesterson said, The man who stands at the door of the brothel is seeking God. Every one of our aspirations, every one of our desires is rooted in our desire to have the life of God in us. And it's taken us to a lot of dark places, and it's led to a lot of disappointments. But if we kill the desire to avoid the dangers, We close the path back to the sea. It was in May that the winds began to blow. The sea lion had grown used to wind, and at first he did not pay much heed to it at all. Years of desert life had taught him to turn his back in the direction from which the wind came and cover his eyes with his flippers so the dust would not get in. Eventually the winds would always pass. But not this time. Day and night it came, howling across the barrenlands. There was nothing to stop his fury, nothing to even slow it down. For 40 days and 40 nights the wind blew. And then just as suddenly as it began, It stopped. The sea lion lifted himself, 
to have a look around. He could hardly believe his eyes. Every single leaf had been stripped from his tree. The branches that remained with only a twig or two upon them looked like an old scarecrow. And I do not need to tell you that there was no longer any shade in which to hide. But worse than this, much worse indeed, was that the sea lion saw next. The water hole was completely dry. Three weeks after the wind ceased to blow, the sea lion had a dream. Now, as I told you before, there were other nights in which he had dreamed of the sea, but those were long ago and nearly forgotten. Even still, the ocean that filled his dreams this night were was so beautiful and clear, so vast and deep, it was as if he were seeing it for the very first time. Then sunlight glittered on its surface, and as he dived the waters all around him, some shone like a, an emerald. He swam quite deep. It turned to jade, cool and dark and mysterious. But he was never frightened, not at all. For I must tell you that in all his dreams of the sea, he had never before found himself in company of other sea lions. This night, there were many round about him, diving and turning, spinning and twirling, they were playing. Oh, how he hated to wake from that dreadful dream. The tears running down his face were the first wet thing he had felt in three weeks. But he did not pause even to wipe them away. He did not pause, in fact, for anything at all. He set his face to the east, and he began to walk as a sea lion can. Where are you going? asked the tortoise. I'm going to find the sea. Jesus says, anyone who asks, I will give living water. It will become in them a stream of living water welling up to eternal life. Where are you taking your thirst for life. Lord, I pray that you would awaken our hearts, deepen our desires, shake us out of those places where we've become content with things that will never deliver. Where we've gotten used to living in a, far that is, in a world that is far from the way that we were made for and are just trying to make do. Stir our hearts to dream again. Risking heart sickness, believing that we have in Christ a promise that not only will you never leave us or forsake us, but that you actually purpose to dwell in us as we navigate our way through this barren land, continuing to believe that we were made for the sea being sustained by the life of you in us as we walk hopefully through this world back to the glory for which we were created. 
teach us the things that we need to know and the ways that we need to practice and, and the things that we need to, to think about and the ways we need to have our minds transformed and renewed so we can have all the life that you have for us as we wait for all the life that you're going to give us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.